John chapter 3. Please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Have you been born again? Jesus said you must be born again. So it has to be something of significance and importance, and yet it seems that fewer people uh, are using this sort of terminology. Uh, it used to be a fairly common way of referring to one's own Christian experience, to be born again. Yet, yet over time, this expression has become, we might say, highly politicized and, and now carries with it some rather unflattering connotations. It has become a, a term of, of derision, suggesting things like religious fundamentalism, right-wing politics, small-mindedness, intolerance, or, or maybe even spiritual elitism. In his book, Whistling in the Dark, A Doubter's Dictionary, Frederick Buchner explains how this once noble term now sounds in the ears of some, perhaps many. He writes, quote, You get the feeling that to those who use the phrase born again, it means super-Christians. They are apt to have the relentless cheerfulness of a Carl salesman. They tend to be a little too friendly, a little too soon, and the women to wear more makeup than they need. You can't imagine any of them ever having had, having had a bad moment or a lascivious thought or using a nasty word when they bump their head getting out of the car. They speak a great deal about the Lord as if they have him in their hip pocket and seem to feel that it's no harder to figure out what he wants them to do in any given situation than to look up in Fanny Farmer how to make brownies. The whole shadow side of human existence, the suffering, the doubt, the frustration, the ambiguity, appears as absent from their view of things as litter from the streets of Disneyland. To hear them speak of God, he seems about as elusive and mysterious as a Billy Graham rally at Madison Square Garden. And on their lips, the born-again experience often sounds like something that we can all make happen at any time we want to, like fudge, if only we follow the recipe. Evidently, then, the, the expression born again has fallen on hard times. And that's unfortunate, first of all, because being born again is a profound biblical experience. An experience that not only marks the beginning of the Christian life, but also that provides a basis for wonder and worship in our lives as believers. But not only that, it's also unfortunate because this terminology is a wonderful biblical expression that we find in the New Testament and even in our text for this morning. This is what this particular section of Scripture is about. It's about the necessity of the new birth or the necessity of regeneration. Now, before we dive into John chapter 3, I think it's important for us that we back up a few, few verses and consider the context. So just, uh, just glance for a moment, a few verses uh, there towards the, the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, John writes, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name and uh, when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So what we find at the end of chapter 2 is is critical information. Uh, The Apostle John tells us, what was going on in, in Jesus's, in, in early in Jesus' ministry when he cleansed the temple for the first time, and he describes for us how and why Jesus refused to accept shallow and sign-based faith. Again, notice verse 23. John states that there were many who believed. But what we glean from the next verse... Verse 24 is that the faith of these individuals was bogus, it was spurious, it was, it was counterfeit, or might even say it was illegitimate. It was a faith that was exercised only on the grounds of them having witnessed the miraculous signs. And Jesus knew that their faith was a sham. He wasn't fooled. In fact, Jesus could not be fooled. Jesus could not be duped by flattery. Jesus could not be enticed by the praise of men or or in any way caught off guard. And because Jesus knew what he knew, John says he did not entrust himself to these false converts. Uh, The Greek actually repeats the verb in verse 24, but but the meaning slightly changes. The idea is this. The people believed in his name, but Jesus did not believe in them. Or you might translate it this way. The people trusted in Jesus' name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because Jesus knew men's hearts. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So Jesus, far from, far from being limited like other human beings, essentially does what God does. He knew all men. And he did not, the text says, he did not need... Man's testimony about man. He did not need man to testify to what was in man. He knew what was in man. Now John will go on to to demonstrate this truth as he writes about Jesus' interaction with a number of individuals. For instance, the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 of John, or or even later in in chapter 4, uh, his interaction with this Gentile official, or even into chapter 5, the man who, would, who had been uh, sick for 38 years, uh, 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 laying beside the, the pool at Bethesda, waiting for his healing. Uh, this will be John's theme, that Jesus gets to the heart issues. Jesus gets to the heart issues. And if there is a failure on the part of people in spiritual matters, Jesus will expose it. Jesus will expose it because he knows. So this is the theme. The theme is Jesus gets to the heart issues. And John's first case study, before he gets to the Samaritan woman and some of these other individuals, his first case study is a man named Nicodemus. A man, as we'll see, who embodied the best of culture. He's sort of the representative man. Embodying the best of culture and education, ethics and spiritual piety but a man that was one of those superficial believers whose heart Jesus read like an open book. Now, this section at the beginning of chapter 3 is essentially, it's essentially a dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. You'll notice there in verse 2, Nicodemus said. Verse 3, Jesus answered. Verse 4, Nicodemus said. Verse 5, Jesus answered. Verse 9, Nicodemus said. Verse 10, Jesus answered. And we could just take that sort of as our framework, we could just say that's our, that's our outline. We're just going to walk through this, this discussion in that manner. But for our purpose this morning, I'd like to suggest we break this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus into two main parts. The first part involves Nicodemus examining Jesus, the Son of God. Nicodemus examining Jesus, the Son of God, in those first two verses. Verse 1, John writes again, Now there was a man... 
And you'll notice the connection back to the last phrase of the previous verse, right? Jesus knew what was in man, that very next phrase. And there was a man, so he connects that, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. So here for the first, first time we're introduced to Nicodemus, a man, and again, not just any man, but a religious man and a moral man. John tells us that he was of the Pharisees, which simply means the, the Pharisees were the separated ones. Now, in our, our day, we have a pretty, you might say, negative picture of the Pharisees, and, and that's mainly because of the harsh words that we know Jesus spoke about them. So in our minds, we, when we hear the term Pharisee, it, it's almost synonymous with hypocrite. Uh, and yet, in the New Testament times, the Pharisees were, in some ways, the best people in the whole land of Israel. <laughs> in the sense that the Pharisees were serious about the law of God. Because trust me, there were a lot of people in Palestine in the first century that could have cared less about the law of God. So in that sense, the Pharisees were the best, maybe, of those in Palestine. They were, you might call them, the theological conservatives of their day. Uh, They were those who believed that the Old Testament was the revealed word of God and that the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, contained an inspired code of ethics to be both believed and practiced literally. And that's what they sought to do. So the scribes would essentially take the Old Testament law, the Pentateuch, and they would hammer out the daily application. What the scribes would do is they would take those books of Moses and they would say, okay, what does that look like in a particular situation in day-to-day life? And then they would, they would try to spell out that application. Unfortunately, what would happen is their applications of Old Testament law became equal right, to the level in authority as the scriptures themselves. But that's essentially what the scribes did. The scribes would work out the exact meaning of the law, and then the Pharisees would make it their goal and their determined purpose to keep it. So Nicodemus was one of these. He was a Pharisee. But he was no run-of-the-mill Pharisee. John also tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. That is, that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council Uh, known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme council of Israel. And although their powers were partly restricted in the first century by the Roman authorities, they were still the supreme court and the highest legislative body in all matters of the law of God. They were entrusted with with keeping and interpreting the oral law. They, They, in some cases, conducted trials. We see this in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. They investigated heresies, they wrote laws, and they actually carried out most of the, uh, the official dealings between the people in Judea and the Roman government at the time. And Nicodemus, John tells us, was a member of this, this, this exclusive governing body, which meant that he had to be distinguished in his knowledge of the Old Testament law, the Torah. That would be an assumption that if he's a Pharisee and he's a member of the Sanhedrin, he would have an a, a, a extreme grasp of, of the law of God. He would have been distinguished in his wisdom. Uh, he would have been considered, amazingly so, as a humble man. Even though, again, we think of Pharisee, we don't, humility doesn't come to our minds when we hear Pharisee. But I'm, I'm talking about the reputation that those men had in the day in which they lived among the common people. The common people did not necessarily see the Pharisees as proud and arrogant. They saw them as people that were men who were, were faithful, trying to apply the law of God. So they saw them, in, in most cases, as humble men, as men who were walking in the fear of the Lord, uh, men who had an indifference to monetary gain, men who had a love of the truth, men who had a love for their fellow man and a good reputation. And this was Nicodemus. A great scholar, a professional student of the law, an interpreter of the law, a distinguished teacher of the law that would have been respected in the Jewish synagogues. And because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, we say Sanhedrin, we, we might even say he was a, pers- a person of social prominence, a highly educated man, as well as a highly moral and ethical man. 
And Nicodemus was a man that, verse 2 indicates, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. For all the, all the young people out here, just want to let you know, this was the first episode of Nick at Night. <laughs> in case you were wondering. Um, we don't know why Nicodemus came at night. There's a lot of speculation about that. Most likely it was simply because there would have been more opportunity in the evening hours to have this kind of discussion for, for the people to interact because even the scholars themselves and the scribes and, would, and, the, and the Pharisees, they would study during the daytime hours and then it was in the evening that they would get together and discuss what they had been studying. So it could be something as simple as that, although it's interesting that every time that John mentions night, the term for night in his gospel, it is either used metaphorically or is symbolically associated with moral and spiritual darkness. Some have suggested that maybe uh, Nicodemus was trying to avoid the criticism by coming at night, but others knowing that he was going to be this. Probably not the case, only because this this event takes place early in the ministry of Jesus. The opposition had not grown to that extent, so we're probably making a little bit more of that. It could have just been, uh, again, just the fact that they, this was the best time to, to interact. Uh, although it is interesting, again, to see that moral implication in light of the fact that Jesus is the one who exposes hearts, right? You have essentially a man who's coming that is, from a, from a, a, a public standpoint, is the most pristine. And yet what Jesus knows about this man is that he is filthy on the inside. So the dialogue begins. And even though Nicodemus himself was a distinguished teacher, he addresses Jesus with the collegial title rabbi. In other words, Nicodemus addresses Jesus as his equal. Rabbi, he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, interestingly, Nicodemus does not say, I know this. He says, we know. Uh, Perhaps Nicodemus saw himself speaking for at least some of the Pharisees or members of of the Jewish ruling council who were in essential agreement with him. But most likely, he was, to some extent, hiding behind his colleagues. So he says, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, referring back to chapter 2, verse 23, these signs that had been been made known there when Jesus was in Jerusalem. Uh, So no one can do these, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So in light of the miraculous signs, Nicodemus was at least convinced that Jesus was no ordinary teacher. He assumed that Jesus was a God-sent man and that God was with him in a unique and peculiar way. We might even say he was openly curious about Jesus. And he was impressed with and believed that the undeniable power manifested in Jesus' miracles were divine, was divine. But apparently he fell short. He fell short of confessing that Jesus was uniquely the promised coming one or the Messiah. Now, according to John, Nicodemus claimed to know something. He, he claimed to see something of who Jesus was in the miracles. But the truth is, his, again, his, save, his, his faith was, from Jesus' perspective, spurious and shallow. And Jesus knew this. And so Jesus responded to Nicodemus. And you'll notice that Nicodemus didn't ask a particular question, and yet Jesus answers him because he reads the question that is buried deeply in the heart of this Pharisee. Jesus wasn't interested in discussing his signs, which had resulted only in superficial faith. Instead, Jesus went straight to the real issue. He exposed Nicodemus. He revealed the true spiritual condition of this man. So that's our second point, picking up in verse 3. The Son of Man exposes Nicodemus. So the tables are turned. Nicodemus comes to Jesus examining Jesus. But what Jesus does is says, I'm going to expose your heart. I'm going to expose you. So in verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, which just simply means take special note of or, or, or these are important words. Mark these words down. I say to you, specifically to Nicodemus himself, it's in the singular Form, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
born again. Genao anothen is the, 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 uh, the phrase in the Greek. It's an expression that can be, uh, it can mean born again. But more likely, it should be translated born from above. Born from above. In fact, this would be more consistent with how John uses this term in other places, such as in later in the chapter in verse 31 or over in chapter 19, verses 11 and verse 23. So he says, you must be born from above. Now, what was, what was Jesus saying? This is not at all what Nicodemus expected to hear. Jesus was saying that if anyone is going to be part of that earthly kingdom at the end of history, and not only that, but if anyone is going to enter into life and to participate in eternal life now, in the present, they must be born from above. And Nicodemus was no exception. So Jesus was saying that unless Nicodemus, this respected and this conscientious Jew and member of the Sanhedrin, was born again, even he could not experience and inherit eternal life. And this is what is so gripping about what Jesus does here. Because Nicodemus had witnessed the signs. Nicodemus was religious. Nicodemus was an established religious authority. He, he was, we might even say, a high-caliber man. He had knowledge and gifts and position and integrity. But Jesus is insistent. Nicodemus, the prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom is the new birth, even for you. Nicodemus needed a radical transformation. He needed the generation of a new life that is comparable with the physical birth. John Calvin says this, he says, By the term born again, he, Jesus, means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. Hence it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. So the implications of Jesus' words for Nicodemus were, were stunning. All of his life, all of his life he had diligently observed the law and the rituals of Judaism. Now Jesus is essentially calling, for, calling him to forsake all of that and to start over. To abandon the entire system of works righteousness in which he had placed his hope. Now, descri describing this sort of amazement or even this, this dismay or just disbelief that Nicodemus must have felt, uh, Linsky, as a, as a commentator, he writes this, quote, he says, Jesus' words regarding the new birth shatters once for all every supposed excellence of man's attainment, all merit of human deeds, all prerogatives of natural birth or station. Spiritual birth is something one undergoes, not something he produces. As our efforts had nothing to do with our natural conception and birth, so in an analogous way, but on a far higher plane, regeneration is not a work of ours. What a blow for Nicodemus. His being a Jew gave him no part in that kingdom. His being a Pharisee esteemed holier than, esteemed holier than the other people availed him nothing. His membership in the Sanhedrin and his fame as one of its scribes went for naught. This rabbi from Galilee calmly tells him that he is not yet in the kingdom, all on which he had built his hopes throughout a long, arduous life, here sank into ruin and became a little worthless heap of ashes. So Nicodemus is probably beginning to feel a little uneasy at this point, right? It's that, it's that feeling that you get when you, you get a phone call from a, like a solicitor, and, and they begin to tell you more about your life than, than you know about your life. They, start, they, they know how many people live in your home, and they know what you do for a living, and they know what your financial obligations are, and they know you're a street address. And you begin to get, the more they talk, the more nervous that you get because you realize that they know these things. Imagine Nicodemus going and, and thinking in his own mind he's going to examine Jesus, and then we're, we're, we're not even but a couple of verses into John 3. And Jesus is beginning to uncover this man's spiritual need. He's probably starting to feel a little uncomfortable. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Two questions that don't so much reflect that Nicodemus was curious about how this new birth could take place, but I think reflect a certain degree of scorn and and contempt in that Nicodemus chose to stress the literalistic or the wooden interpretation of being born again rather than of being born from above. Now, why would Nicodemus do that? Well, it's very, very simple because Nicodemus didn't agree with what Jesus was saying. He didn't believe that the new birth was necessary to enter into the kingdom, especially for someone like himself. In fact, he was amazed by what Jesus was suggesting. Now, whatever the degree of Nicodemus's misunderstanding, Jesus decided to restate his challenge in a slightly different way and to provide a more detailed explanation. Jesus answered in verse 5, Truly, truly, mark my words, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So unless this happens, not only can Nicodemus not see or experience the kingdom, he cannot even get through the door. He, he cannot even enter it. Now notice, notice what Jesus does. Instead of repeating the requirement of being born again or being born from above, he, he says that a person must be born of water and the Spirit. So what does he mean by that? Well, some have proposed that what Jesus meant was that a person must experience two births, one natural and the other supernatural. In other words, they see that they view that the, that the water in this verse refers to the amniotic fluid that surrounds a baby in its mother's womb, and that the natural what Jesus is saying is that the natural birth is not enough that there must be a second birth, a second begetting, this, this, this one of the Spirit. Others find in the mention of water a reference to Christian baptism, suggesting that the Spirit affects new birth through baptism. So this is where Roman Catholicism would, would go down this, this, this trail. They would, this, is the, this would be their particular view. You also have really any other, uh, any other group that might embrace uh, baptismal regeneration. Uh, and there are several, there are several other theories. A few of them, pretty honestly, pretty bizarre. But what's important to note is that the Greek construction doesn't really favor two different births. In other words, the, this expression "born of water and the Spirit" should be taken as a reference not to two different births, but of one birth. And not just because of the, the syntax or the grammar of the, of, the, of the statement, but also because of the fact that this, ex, this expression is equivalent to the expression found in verse 3, which is to be born from above. So Jesus says essentially this, unless one is born from above or, in other words, in, in a, he's comparing these two things, or unless he is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom or experience or enter into eternal life. But what exactly does this mention of water and spirit refer to? Well, we know that it has to refer to something in the Old Testament because of the way in, that in verse 10, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for not understanding these things as Israel's teacher. So clearly that, that, that challenge or that indictment on Jesus' part, he's just saying that you should have known this. Well, in, how would Nicodemus have known this? Well, it would have been from his studies in the Old Testament. So what do we find in the Old Testament? Well, regarding the Spirit, the Spirit was constantly presented in the Old Testament as the principle of life. And particularly in the prophets, the, the writers looked forward to a time when God's Spirit would be poured out on mankind with the results of blessing and righteousness and an inner renewal that would cleanse God's covenant people from their idolatry and their disobedience. Regarding water, when used figuratively in the Old Testament, in many places it referred as well to this renewal or this cleansing, especially when it was coupled with the work of the Spirit of God. So one of the places 
where these two ideas come together in a very clear and a very forceful way is in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. This is a, one of the passages dealing with the new covenant uh, promise. Uh, it's a passage that contains a, a prophetic word from the Lord to the nation of Israel at the end of the Babylonian captivity. And we, don't, we won't read all of this, but just picking up in Ezekiel 36, verse 24. The Lord makes this promise, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a description of what happens at the new birth. This is a description of the same kind of radical, wholesale new start that Jesus was speaking about as a birth from above. So when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus... These are the things that Jesus had in mind. The removal of the old heart, the implantation of the new heart, and the indwelling, soul-transforming influence of the Spirit of God. This is what Jesus was telling Nicodemus, that he needed a supernatural, spiritual cleansing or a spiritual washing and a purification of the inner life. Right? Because what were the Pharisees all about? They were all about purification, right? And they were all about ceremonial washings, but they were only addressing what? The outside, right? So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you need a cleansing and a washing and a purification of the inner life. In Titus chapter 3, verse 4, it states it this way. Paul said, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration, the the washing and the renewal. These are the themes of Ezekiel 36. A washing that is complete and thorough, a spiritual renewal that, that revamps and regenerates the very core of our being. And yes, we know that the full range of promises in Ezekiel 36 will not be completely realized in the sense of on a national scale for Israel until Christ returns to establish his earthly reign. But in principle, this passage describes exactly what happens when when God regenerates a person and the kind of heart change that takes place in every soul that is converted. And this is what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus that night. That in order to see the kingdom in the first place, it is necessary to experience this kind of new birth. A new birth that cleanses and a new birth that renews. Because we all need it, right? We all need cleansing from impurity. We all need renewal and a transformation of heart that will enable us to follow God wholly. Why? Because we are all born with a heart that is corrupt and sinful. Or as Ezekiel says, with a heart of stone. A heart that is turned against God. A heart that is cold, hard, dead. A heart that doesn't respond to spiritual stimuli. A heart that is incapable of any love for God. Incapable of knowing any lasting sorrow over sin. Incapable of any sincere appetite for righteousness. And these are the truths that Nicodemus seemed to overlook. These are the things, it seems, that Nicodemus had not thought much about. Why had he thought, not thought much about them? Well, because like many of the Pharisees of his day, he, too, or he, he was too confident. Too confident of the quality of his own obedience. Too confident of the quality of his own obedience to think that he needed much repentance. You may remember the account recorded in Luke chapter 7. 
Beginning in verse 36, Luke writes, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at, t- at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with, her hair, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to, not Jesus, he said to who? Himself. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, (laughs) it just sounds like Nicodemus. I mean, Nicodemus wasn't coming asking a question. Nicodemus came with expectations. He came with thoughts. But Jesus answered Nicodemus. And in the same way, this Pharisee is saying to himself these thoughts, and it says, Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she was... She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, and let's not be, let's be honest, which are many. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Was Jesus trying to make the point that she was more of a sinner than Simon or that Simon was more of a sinner than her? No, what, he was, what he's saying is that this woman recognized her sin. To her, her sin was massive. And so when she understood the mercy and grace of God in forgiving her sin, what did it lead her to do? To love much. <coughs> to love much. This was a huge problem for the Pharisees. They had a strong commitment to observing the law of God, and they observed the law carefully as far as appearances were concerned. But in their hearts, they were far from God. Their motives were impure because they wanted the praise of men. Their evil desires were hidden by their pious outward show. Their their hearts didn't match their outward appearance. The Pharisees thought that they could match God's standards by keeping all of the outward rules. But Luke 18 and verse 9 says this, that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So although they were right in many points of doctrine, they made one basic and very tragic error. They externalized religion. And the Lord denounced them again and again and again for their exhibitionism and their self-righteous attitude. So Nicodemus didn't just need to turn over a new leaf. Nicodemus needed new birth, new life, a new heart. And that is why Jesus says in John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Natural human birth, Jesus says, produces people who belong to the earthly family of mankind, but not the children of God. Only the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. He is the only one that produces a new nature. And that is exactly what Nicodemus needed, a new nature. And that is what Nicodemus should have understood. He should have known that he needed a God-given new birth. A birth from above. This shouldn't have come to Nicodemus as a surprise. That's why Jesus continues, verse 7, Do not marvel, do not be astonished, do not be amazed that I said to you. And what's interesting is he changes from a singular form to a plural form. That I said to you, plural, you all must be born again. Which, by the way, is not a command. It's a statement. Jesus isn't talking about a moral duty. For, that you need to go out and get born again. 
Jesus is talking about a divine decree. So when he says, you must be born again, he doesn't mean, by all means, see to it that you are born again. On the contrary, he means something has to happen to you. Something has to happen to you. The Holy Spirit has to plant in your hearts the life from above. Interestingly, Jesus, again, uses the plural form of the word you. He had used the singular form back in in addressing Nicodemus back in verses 3 and 5. But you remember the way that Nicodemus began the conversation in verse 2, right? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So Jesus is simply broadening the application. In other words, he's saying, Nicodemus, it's not just you. It's not just you. But it's everyone that you are claiming to represent. In fact, it's, it's the entire human race. No one can see the kingdom without a new heart. No one can enter into eternal life unless the Spirit of God does this work of regeneration. And wherever the Spirit works, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. It's just simply saying, listen, the, the wind does as it pleases. The wind cannot be seen. Uh, it's impossible for us to know its source and its destination. In, in a sense, it's incomprehensible or mysterious. And yet we don't deny that it exists, and we certainly don't deny its power. And the same is true of the Spirit of God. He does as He pleases. He can't be seen. And His activity is hard for the world, and even us at times, to understand and explain. But when the Spirit of God affects change in a person's life, it is hard to deny. It's hard to deny. And that's because it is a supernatural thing. It is a work of God. Well, Nicodemus, still hearing all of this through the ears of a natural man, verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? You see, this isn't at all what Nicodemus had understood or been teaching for years. He had believed and he had taught that all Jews would be admitted into the kingdom of God that weren't guilty of deliberate apostasy or some sort of gross wickedness. That, That entrance into the kingdom for him was a matter of obedience and devotion to God, but he had never understood this condition, this absolute requirement of a birth from above. Well, at this point, Nicodemus disappears from the dialogue. That The dialogue changes to discourse where Jesus is speaking, Nicodemus is listening. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, you all, plural, do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus had indicated by his questions and his entire expression that he was not ready to accept the teaching of Jesus concerning the necessity of regeneration, and besides, Jesus was able to read what was in Nicodemus' heart. So he says in verse 12, if I, have, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The bottom line, Nicodemus found Jesus' teaching hard to embrace. He had approached Jesus with a certain amount of respect, but he had not even begun to appreciate who Jesus really was. He had misunderstood Jesus. He had misunderstood Jesus, his, his, who, he, who he was, his person, what he was about. He, he certainly had misunderstood his own spiritual condition and the need for a new heart. We might say Nicodemus was a dishonest skeptic, like many today. He came to Jesus with his questions, and he clearly came with spiritual needs, but Jesus faulted him, not for a lack of information, but because of his rejection of the truth and what had been made plain to him, not only in the Old Testament, but in the words of Christ in this very conversation. So from man's perspective, Nicodemus was a recognized master. He was a a reverend, a doctor, a professor, a senior professor of the Old Testament scriptures. He was respectable. He was moral, religious, and a model of obedience. But in reality... Nicodemus was inwardly full of moral and spiritual darkness. A guide to the blind. A man who was more concerned about identifying the Messiah than preparing for the Messiah. This was Israel's problem. 
Israel was looking to, they, were, they wanted the, king, the kingdom to come, and they were looking to see who was going to bring in the kingdom. When's the Messiah coming? The problem is that eschatological, that understanding of, of prophecy did not drive them to purify their hearts. They didn't prepare themselves, and that's exactly what Nicodemus has done. He was wanting to know more about Jesus, but he wasn't getting prepared in his heart. He needed transformation, a renewal of the whole nature, because his standing and his works were not enough. Even if he had not been hypocritical, like many of the Pharisees were, still keeping the law could never have saved him. Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no man, no human being will be justified in God's sight. So in spite of his achievements, in spite of his prominence, his prominence in education, in spite of his status, his reputation in politics, culture, and religion, Nicodemus had a huge need. He was lost, he was blind, and he needed to know God. So some may ask, was Nicodemus ever born again? Was Nicodemus ever born from above? Well, it appears that he, he may have eventually come around to side with Jesus. In John 7, we learn that he defended Jesus uh, before the Sanhedrin. Uh, later on in John 19, we see him helping Joseph of Arimathea, preparing the body of Jesus for burial after the crucifixion. But it's not, it's not totally clear. We don't know with absolute certainty that Nicodemus genuinely believed the gospel. But, but what's interesting, there is another example of a man who did. This man was a rabbi, just like Nicodemus. He also came from a good family and was well-versed in Greek and as well as Hebrew culture, just like Nicodemus. He had studied with the best men of his day. He was a Pharisee. He was associated with the Sanhedrin. And he put down sectarian groups that threatened his brand of Judaism. But there came a time when this prominent rabbi was on his way to Damascus with an assignment to flush out and imprison the Christians of that city, and he met Jesus Christ. He received new life. And afterward, and we're talking about Paul, afterward he wrote about it, saying that all of his achievements, like those of Nicodemus, had really proved worthless. And not just worthless, but, but harmful, because they had kept him from true saving faith in Christ. He wrote this in Philippians 3, verse 8 and following. And this is the New English Bible. Uh, just, was, I really like the way this, this translation says, if any, Paul wrote this, if anyone thinks to base his claims on externals, I could make a stronger case for myself. Circumcised on my eighth day, Israelite by race, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born and bred, in my attitude to the law, a Pharisee, in pious zeal, a persecutor of the church, in legal rectitude, faultless, but all such assets I have written off because of Christ. I would say more. I count everything sheer loss because all is far outweighed by the gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I did, in fact, lose everything. This was the experience of the Apostle Paul. My question to you is, is this your experience? Is this your life? Or are you still trying to discover a life of satisfaction and meaning through your own limited achievements, your own human understanding, and your own efforts? If so, I, I encourage you, don't be like Nicodemus. Don't, don't keep dodging these issues. Don't keep dodging the implications of the gospel. You cannot save yourself. You need to be born from above. You, you need to confess your inability and turn to Jesus Christ and trust in what he's done through his death and resurrection. And hear me, entrance into God's kingdom, entrance into God's salvation, isn't a matter of adding something to all of your efforts. It's not about topping off your religious devotion. It's about canceling everything and starting all over again. So if you're not yet a Christian, I invite you to face the reality of these things and to yield your life to the one who's able to make you a new creature through Jesus Christ. And for those of you who do claim to be a Christian, similar question. What about your life? What about your life? Are you living in such a way that would make it unlikely for you to ever be able, on the basis of your life, to point someone to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior? Can you point to anything 
that would hold up as tangible evidence for yourself and others of the power of God through Christ and His Spirit to transform your thinking and your lifestyle. How has your life changed? Jesus knows what's in your heart. He's not fooled. He knows exactly what you're thinking this morning. He knows who you are. And listen, there isn't a person in this room that does not need to be born from above. I agree with Jonathan Edwards. You said that the grace in the hearts of Christians, the gift of the new birth, the presence of the Spirit in your soul, this is the most glorious work of God. So let us rejoice then in the goodness and the kindness of God who sent a Savior into the world for our sins and for our salvation, who died and rose again to redeem us and to give us new life, not because of what we have done or will do, but as an expression of his own mercy and in a way that is both mysterious and marvelous. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege we have this morning to come together and to worship you. And thank you for this time to open up the, the living word of God that endures forever. Father, thank you for your word by which the lost sinners are re- regenerated and given new life. Thank you for your word that is powerful enough to convert the soul And for those of us who are believers, Lord, it has the ability to strengthen us, to protect us from sin, to give us wisdom, and to revive our hearts. So, Lord, we are so grateful for the truth, and we ask simply that you would use your word in a powerful way in our hearts today. That those who are lost would confess their sins and turn to Jesus and rely on him alone. And that those of us who already believe in Christ would continue to trust him that we might be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.